It's my pleasure to introduce our lecturer tonight for tonight. Um, in place of the dean who regrets his absence, he's at the Cortex Society, so he delegated this task. Our lecturer is Dr. Christina von Nolken, who is associate professor in the Department of English and the College at the University of Chicago, and also chair of the program in medieval studies there. Professor von Nolken received her doctorate from Oxford University with an edition of the Middle English translation of the Rosarium Theologiae as her dissertation. Her teaching interests include Old and Middle English literature and language, Anglo-Saxon culture, the history of the English language, editing medieval English texts, late medieval literacy in the Wycliffeites, late medieval English dream poetry and English devotional prose, and she has published extensively in all these areas. The title of her lecture tonight is Another Lollard in the Wind, Chaucer, His Miller, and Nicholas Dore. Please welcome Professor von Nolken. Thank you very much, Professor Tuck. And thank all of you for coming on a Friday evening to hear about Chaucer. <laughs> Isadora Wing, who is the heroine of Erica Young's 1974 Fear of Flying, at one point she's sitting in Paris, it's the end of the novel, and she's had all this trouble with men and this sort of thing, and she's fantasizing about the pilgrims in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Chaucer's Miller, she describes as a former political activist from the University of Chicago who now distributes literature for French women's lives. The Miller I will be talking about today is rather like Isadora's Miller, though he won't yet have discovered the delights of women's lib. Why are you a feminist? Isadora asks the man she knew to have been keen on the movement, because it's the best damned way of getting laid nowadays. But our Miller will be something of a political activist. He will also prove quite an intellectual. It's the reading of him that those of you who know his tale will surely find strikingly counterintuitive. But I'm truly convinced that it, or something very like it, is there. But my argument is not just about the Miller and his tale. It's also by implication about Chaucer's method and interest in the Canterbury Tales generally. As those of you familiar with Chaucer criticism will know well, readers long thought that Chaucer avoided con considering contemporary events or politics in his poetry, to the extent that they often remarked with surprise on the almost complete absence of any reference to these. But in the last 20 years or so, readers have been uncovering a good deal of just such discussion deeply encoded in the poetry. Now, I'm not the first to find such discussion encoded into that seemingly most unlikely of places, the Miller's Tale. And the written version of this paper contains many, many acknowledgements, which I won't be referring to here. Um, but I am pretty sure that I'm the first fully to argue for the Miller's taking a stand on some of the most controversial and for a lower-class person like himself, dangerous 
issues preoccupying 14th century England. Um, as we shall see, these issues will focus on what was at the time a supremely controversial work. This was the first translation of the whole Bible from the language of learning, which of course was Latin, into the language that everyone spoke, English. So that's where I'm going, towards a miller who is taking a stand on behalf of this translation and what it represents. Now I need to get us there, using Chaucer's text interspersed with some background information. So let's start with the miller as he first appears in the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales. And for those of you who don't know the Canterbury Tales, this is where Chaucer, or the version of Chaucer who's inside the Canterbury Tales, this is where he's introducing the pilgrims he'll be travelling to Canterbury with. Um, it's on the handout, and I hope everyone has a copy of the, of the handout. I'm going to read it in Middle English, and I suggest you just look at the Middle English while I do that, and then I'll go through it. Um, so it's the first item on your handout. The miller was a stout car for the nones, full big he was of brawn and ache of bones, that proved well. For overall there he come at rustling, he was have alway the ram. He was short-shouldered, broad, a thicker knar, than nas no door that he nold have of horror, or break it at a renning with his head. His beard as any shoe or fox was red, and there too broad as though it were spada. Upon the cup, wrist of his nose, he had a wert, and thereon stood a tuft of hair as red as the bristles of a sewer's airy. His nose was still blacker where and weeder, a swear to the buckler bar he be his cedar. His mouth as great was as a great fornice. He was a jangler, and ache a goliardice, and that was most of sin and hollow freers. Well could he stale and corn and toll and freers, and yet he had a dome of gold par day. A wheat coat and a blue hood where it he, a bag of peat well could he blow and sooner, and therewithal, he brought us out of tuna. So, um, the miller was a, a, an exceedingly strong man for the occasion. He was big um, in uh, um, bones and uh, in brawn, and that did well for him. For everywhere he went, he'd win the ram, that is the prize, at wrestling. He was thick-shouldered, broad, a knotty fellow, there wasn't any door that he wouldn't heave off its hinges or break it by running at it with his head. His beard was as red as any sow or fox and broad like a spade. On the very tip of his nose he had a wart, and out of it grew a tuft of hairs as red as the bristles of a sow's ears. His nostrils were black and wide. He had a sword, a buckler at his side. His mouth was as huge as a great furnace. He was a chatterer a teller of jests and dirty stories, most of sin and harlotry. He was good at stealing corn and charging three times for it, yet he had a sum of gold indeed. He wore a white coat and a blue hood. He was excellent at playing the bagpipes, and to that sound he brought us out of town. Well, what we have here does seem to be that of a swaggering, thickly physical, storytelling bagpipe player whose nostrils and mouth gaped hugely at us, and who, among other things, runs around the countryside, pouring forth harlotries and breaking doors with his head. But we have to ask, is this really what the miller was like? Or does the description largely reflect 
what Chaucer thought all millers were like. And here I'm referring to the version of himself that Chaucer the poet put inside the Canterbury Tales. Someone has been usefully called Pilgrim Chaucer. I'll call him Pilgrim Chaucer. Elsewhere, and here I'm thinking mainly of the general prologue, this version of Chaucer, Pilgrim Chaucer, reveals himself a bit of a snob over how the prioress didn't know quite the right kind of French, for example. And he certainly emerges from the general prologue as far more likely to spend time talking with highly placed persons like the knight than with churls like the miller. Pilgrim Chaucer may enjoy his heavy-handed joke about the miller's golden thumb, but it's most unlikely that he has actually experienced this particular miller's dishonesty firsthand where he knows all the details of the knight's career. And then, what about all those doors? How on earth could Pilgrim Chaucer know, on this very first day of the pilgrimage, about the miller's talents in the door department? Because the miller's already been displaying these talents while at the inn at Southwark in London, Southwark in, um, the Tabard in Southwark, South London, has he been displaying these talents on the previous evening? Or maybe he was displaying them while the knight was telling his tale this morning. Well, we haven't heard any complaints, either from the innkeeper, Harry Bailey, who decided to ride along with the pilgrims as master of ceremonies in the tale-telling, and the other pilgrims did seem to sleep okay at the, the inn. We didn't hear any complaints during the knight's tale, come to think of it. So does Pilgrim Chaucer know about the miller's talent because the miller's been bragging? As Neville Coghill assumes in his translation, it's not in the Middle English, but Coghill, and I'll be using his translation mainly, he says here, he would boast, he could heave any door off hinge and post, or take a run and break it with his head. Perhaps. But even if the miller has been bragging, should Pilgrim Chaucer believe him? After all, the miller might have his reasons for promoting what seems to have been his own door-related stereotypes. So what did slightly snobbish, well-situated people like Pilgrim Chaucer think millers, or churls like the miller, were like in the later 14th century? Now, to a very large extent, they seem to have regarded them as clown-like comics, exactly the sort of people who couldn't see a door without running at it. They also always assumed millers were thieves. You know, the golden thumb joke was proverbial. But at least since 1381, and the miller's tale must have been written some ten years after this, at least since 1381, they also saw the likes of the miller not as comic, but as belonging to a highly threatening, subhuman, churlish mass. Now this was Largely because in 1381, the establishment had been completely traumatized by what came to be known as the Peasants' Revolt. This was the, last, the first large-scale uprising of its kind in England's history. The immediate cause of this revolt had been high taxation, but the revolt also keyed into lots of other discontents with landowners for trying to keep workers bound to the land, with the church for continuing to demand their labor. And what happened was that in June 1381, 
armed bands began attacking manors and religious houses in various parts of the country, systematically destroying any legal records they could lay their hands on. Presumably this was because they saw these records as perpetuating their own servitude. Well, rebels from Essex and Kent, that's in the southeast, of course, they marched on London. They marched through the very gate over which Chaucer was living at the time. And there in London, besides storming the tower and beheading the Archbishop of Canterbury and others, they destroyed a good deal of property, not least the sumptuous Savoy Palace, the home of John of Gaunt, who's Chaucer's early patron and the uncle of the young king Richard II. Order was restored only after this young king, Richard, promised, he rode out to see them, the rebels that met the rebels at Mile End, and he promised them everything they asked for. Later, he would revoke all his promises. I quote, Rustics you were, rustics you are still. You will remain in bondage, not as before, but incomparably harsher. Well, a remarkable feature of the revolt was the coordination that was shown by the widely scattered groups as they rose up in different parts of the country. And this coordination was partly achieved via letters that were passed between the groups. And some of these letters have reached us, and they're all in an odd kind of code. And I'll quote you one. It's preserved in a hostile chronicle, but I draw your attention to the central place it gives a miller. It's on the handout. Um, there were 20,000 men in this crowd of rebels. These were their leaders, Thomas Baker, Jack Straw, Jack Milner, Jack Carter, and Jack Truman. Jack Milner spoke thus to his fellows. Jack Miller asked for help to turn his mill aright. He has ground things small and small. The king's son of heaven shall pay for all. Take care that your mill turns well with its four sails, and that the post stands steadfast. With might and with right, with skill and with will, let might help right, and skill go before will, and right before might, and then our mill will go aright. Well, for the establishment, that is, persons like Pilgrim Chaucer, Literacy amongst such peasants or churls was just about unthinkable. For, for them, such persons were no more than animals. This is what they thought they sounded like at the revolt and afterwards. And I'm going to quote Chaucer's friend and fellow poet, the lawyer John Gower, and it's on, on the handout. Time and again they cried out with the deep voices of monsters, and they kept making various noises in various ways. Some of them bray in the beastly manner of asses. Some bellowed the lowings of oxen. Some give out horrible swinish grunts. The hungry fox wails. And this is what a contemporary Benedictine historian had to say about them when they were executing the archbishop, but I'll only quote the last sentence of this passage. Words could not be heard among their horrible shrieks but rather their throats sounded with the bleating of sheep, or to be more accurate, with the devilish voices of peacocks. Well, occasionally, such writers did allow the peasants something resembling a human voice, but they didn't allow them to speak sense. This is the 
this is the court re record about proceedings against one of the rebels. Now, he wasn't a miller, admittedly, but someone very like him. Um, I'll be reading a little bit spottily from the passage you have in front of you. John Shirley of the County of Nottingham was taken because it was found that he had been a vagabond in various counties during the whole time of the disturbance, carrying lies as well as silly and worthless talk from district to district. Among other damaging work, words, he said in a tavern in Bridge Street in Cambridge, where many were assembled to listen to his news and worthless talk, that the stewards of the Lord the King, as well as the justices and many other officers and ministers of the King, were more deserving to be drawn and hanged than John Ball, Chaplin, and a traitor and felon lawfully convicted. John Ball was one of the leaders of the Peasants' Revolt. He had been executed in St. Albans on the previous day, so news had travelled fast to Cambridge. Okay, back to Shirley's trial. And thereupon the said John Shirley was immediately brought by the sheriff before the said justices. And when these things had been acknowledged by him before the said justices, his evil behaviour and condition were made plainly manifest and clear. And thereupon trustworthy witnesses, when the above-mentioned lies, evil words, threats, and worthless talk had been spoken by him, testified that all the aforesaid words had indeed been spoken by him, and he did not deny the charges laid against him. Therefore, by the discretion of the said justices, he was hanged. Well, with these attitudes in mind, let's take another look at our miller. Certainly, in enough ways to count, we can now see that besides resembling a swaggeringly dishonest comic, he also resembles this post-1381 version of a churl. What with his huge body, red fox-like beard and sow-like bristles, He's bestial. He's certainly undisciplined. He's so invasive of our space that we can see the hairs on his nose. He haunts taverns. He travels the countryside, pouring forth tales of sin and harlotry, or as the court recorder would have put it, lies, evil words, threats, and worthless talk, and so on. But this is also a view obviously affected by ruling class distortion. If we try to peel away the distortions, we get a glimpse of yet another miller, one who might be capable of a kind of talk that many would consider far from worthless. Political talk, perhaps. Talk about how to change society. This is the miller who interests me. I return to Chaucer's text, picking up at the point where the knight, highest in the pilgrim's social pecking order, has finished telling the first tale. Harry Bailey, the innkeeper, turns to the monk, who's the highest ranking among the male clerics, asks him to tell the second tale. Come on, Sir Monk, if you've a tale to tell, repay the knight a little for his tale. But the miller, of all people, tries to jump the social queue. By blood and bones and belly, I've got a noble story I can tell ye. I'll pay the knight his wages, not the monk. Harry Bailey tries to smooth things over. Our host perceived at once that he was drunk and said, Now hold on, Robin, dear old brother. We'll get some better man to tell another. You wait a bit. Again, the miller won't be silent. God's soul, I won't, said he. At all events, I mean to talk, or else I'll go my way. The host gives way. Well, blast you then, you may. You're just a fool. Your wits are overcome. Well, so far, we've 
had exactly what we with our elitist eyes might expect, a drunken miller brashly asserting himself. Then he does something surprising. Instead of rushing directly into his tale, he pauses and starts making excuses. And he does this just after Pilgrim Chaucer has drawn our attention to how he wouldn't abide any man for his courtesy. He wouldn't wait on any man out of courtesy. Now listen, said the miller, one and all, to what I have to say, but first I'm bound to say I'm drunk. I know it by my sound, and if the words get muddled in my tale, just put it down to too much southern ale. Well, if his aim has been to reinforce the idea that he's drunk, he's probably been successful. But we also need to know, notice that he's been very clever. He has assured himself of a place to hide, should such a place prove necessary. Well, now, it seems a shame to question the miller's drunkenness. No one's done this before me, at least in print. But we don't have that good evidence for it. Now, Pilgrim Chaucer obviously thinks the miller is paralytically drunk. He could scarcely stick on his horse, he tells us. And Pilgrim Chaucer assumes the host thinks likewise. Our host saw that he was drunk of ale. The reeve also refers to the miller's lewd, drunken harlotry. But the reeve would always want to share the assumptions of his social superiors. And the host, who knows the miller as Robin, and addresses him as his dear brother, his lever brother, he could well have had rather different anxieties from Pilgrim Chaucer, say, concerning the miller's coming tale. Might Harry Bailey, in fact, have been among the Southwark residents who hailed the 1381 rebels as their neighbours and friends? And then as for Pilgrim Chaucer, he too is happy enough to have a place to hide should we start blaming him, for including churlish stuff in the Canterbury Tales. It isn't his fault, he tells us, that the miller talks like this, but if we just turn the page, we'll find plenty of gentility, holiness, and morality. We're literate, after all. We can turn the page. And furthermore, Pilgrim Chaucer acts as a final gesture of helplessness. One should not make something serious out of the game. So here I am, busy disobeying Pilgrim Chaucer and making something serious out of the game. But is Pilgrim Chaucer right to describe the Miller's Tale as simply a game? And for those of you who've never read it, I'm going to give you a summary. Excuse me, those who have read it, they would kill me in Chicago if they knew I was doing this. But I'm just going to summarize this. I've put one on the handout, but I'm doing my own kind of version of it. It's giving you just the germ of the story. When we start, we have a young Oxford student a clerk, his name is Nicholas, and he's lodging with an old carpenter called John. And John has a stunningly sexy young wife called Alison. While John's away, Nicholas and Alison agree they're going to make love sometime, some other time when the carpenter's away. So Nicholas devises his stratagem. He locks himself up in his room, after some days, John sends his maid, Robin, to see what was up. Robin reports that Nicholas is gawping up as if at the new moon. John thinks Nicholas must be ill, and he and Robin break down the door. 
Nicholas tells John he's learnt by divination that a great flood like Noah's is about to come and that only the three of them, John, Nicholas and Alison, can escape. So he explains all three of them must spend the night in wooden tubs, one each, slung in the roof, so that when the flood rises they're going to be able to float out on the water. Well, everything's got ready, climb up into their tubs. The husband, John, falls asleep. The two young people skip downstairs and into bed. But along comes another lover of the wife, a fastidious, squeamish village, village dandy called Absalom. He serenades the wife and asks for a kiss. She flung the window open then in haste and said, Have done, come on, no time to waste. The neighbors here are always on the spy. Absalom started wiping his mouth dry. Dark was the night as pitch, as black as coal, and at the window out she put her hole, and Absalom, so fortune framed the farce, put up his mouth and kissed her naked ass most savorously before he knew of this, and back he started. Something was amiss. He knew quite well a woman has no beard, yet something rough and hairy had appeared. What have I done, he said. Can that be you? Tee-hee, she cried, and clapped the window too. Off went poor Absalom, in a fury, meets up with a smith and returns with a red-hot piece of iron, a plowshare. Again he serenades the wife. Now Nicholas had risen for a piss and thought he could improve upon the jakes and make him kiss his ass ere he escaped, and opening the window with a jerk, stuck out his ass, a handsome piece of work, buttocks and all, as far as to the haunch, and Absalom, all ready to make a launch, Speak, pretty bird, I know not where thou art. This Nicholas at once let fly a fart as loud as it were a thunderclap. He was near blinded by the blast, poor chap, but his hot iron was ready. With a thump he smote him in the middle of the rump. Off went the skin, a hand spread round about, where the hot coulter struck and burnt it out. Such was the pain he thought he must be dying, and mad with agony he started crying, Help! Water, water, help for heaven's love. The cry awakes the husband who thinks the flood has come, cuts the rope that holds his tub, crashes to the floor where he knocks himself out and breaks his arm. The wife and lover rouse their neighbors, and since many of these are clerics, um, they side with our clerk and tell the husband that he's mad and laugh at him. Thus he suffers, and the miller wastes no sympathy on him. Well, <laughs> put like this, the miller's tale certainly seems to be a game and a pretty crude one at that. But as anyone who's read the tale will attest, such a summary glosses over so much. And most importantly for my argument here, it glosses over the fact that the tale comes from someone who controls a good deal of book learning. The miller is completely comfortable discussing Nicholas's study habits. It includes an astrolabe, um, the Almagesta. He's able to name all this. He's just as happy describing these. In fact, he's happier. He's more at home than Pilgrim Chaucer was when he vaguely referred to 40 books of Aristotle that his clerk in the general prologue would have liked. I'm sure it had. Now, the miller also knows his Cato quite well. This is a text that dominates his elementary reading in Latin. Um, he refers to Cato on the subject of old men marrying young wives, not a great idea, um, and there are various other echoes. 
and he knows a great deal more about music and musical instruments than one might expect from Pilgrim Chaucer's crude bagpipe player. Unlike his creation, his John, the miller knows the difference between Noah and Noel. John refers to Noel's flood, but the miller knows better. Um, and the miller even gets his foreign tags right, though there's not much evidence that he gets the Angelus ad Virginem, cases and all, par compagnie, he does rather better on that front, say, than the Franklin does. So what are we to make of the apparent discrepancy between this relatively sophisticated teller and the drunken teller that Pilgrim Chaucer has shown us? Well, for a long time, readers simply said the learning came from Chaucer, and that is, of course, Chaucer the poet. And I'll just quote what they used to say in the 70s, sort of when I was learning this stuff. This is Donald Howard. Obviously, the miller is not up to providing his tale with this substratum of learned and literary illusion. Chaucer himself provides it. He intrudes on the dramatic monologue. But as we have seen, at least since 1381, persons like the miller were apparently using literacy as a communicative tool. I need to say a bit more about the social struggle that was developing in this period between the laity, and in particular the lower laity, and the clerical classes. And the clash was over, of course, who should control book learning. And in particular, who should control the learning that one needs to achieve salvation. Now, for a good long while, um, starting, let's say, in the early 13th century and gathering momentum into the 14th century, all this time, the clerical classes had been sort of performing their pedagogical duty. They'd been cautiously preparing the first French, later English, versions of helpful religious works for personal use by lay folks. But books were still very expensive then. So they were few and far between. Um, these efforts didn't mean that the clergy were in any danger of losing their traditional control of the learning that these books contained. As they moved towards the end of the 14th century, everything becomes much more problematic. For various reasons to do with technology, books became cheaper, and literacy is spreading ever lower in society. Um, that's partly because of the depopulation that had taken place in the Black Death. Um, so that people, laborers, were able to command higher salary, higher wages, and acquire the leisure they needed to learn to read. And they were learning to read in English. There are more and more books coming out, so they're learning to read in their own language. Um, anyway, all this is happening in the later 14th century, and everything explodes just about when Chaucer was working on the Canterbury Tales. And what lit the match? to use an R idiom, caused this explosion, seems to me, I'm pretty sure this is right, it was the ideas associated with the Oxford philosopher and theorist John Wycliffe, who died in 1384, to give you an idea of the chronology. Now, he believed that the established church was failing to provide what the people most needed, that is, access to the word of God. And he inspired an able group of followers who with missionary zeal tried to put things right. And they simply bypassed the established church and set about educating the people themselves. And they partly did it in the old-fashioned way by sending out preachers and teachers from the university. 
but they also taught people to read and provided them with a wide range of relatively inexpensive reformist books. And these books most importantly included a translation into English of that book that more than any other the clergy regarded as their exclusive possession, the Bible. And the translation that they put out was the first of the whole Bible into English. And its earlier version appeared probably in the early 1390s, just about when I would date the Miller's Tale, and a later and more polished version appeared probably between 1395-1397. Now, whatever the Wycliffeites or the Lollards, as they came to be termed, whatever they claimed, in preparing this, they weren't actually doing anything that different from what the established church had been doing for the laity that is, preparing books for them. You know, they'd been, the, the church had long been preparing these books for lay consumption, and many of them were biblically related. And this is also taken account of the still illiterate, still, of course, the majority of the population, via sermons, wall paintings, and, importantly for the Miller's Tale, cycles of biblical plays that selectively covered the whole sweep of biblical history from the creation to the Last Judgment. But when the church made the Bible available, whether it was in narratives, in pictures, or in forms like the plays, it was only in a highly pre-digested form. That is, all the interpretation was built in. You didn't want to let people loose to make wrong interpretations. Whereas the Wycliffeites felt completely secure about making the Bible's actual words, what came to be termed its naked text, available to anyone able to read. Um, their idea was that if you were on the right side, if you were saved, you would get the right meaning for these words. I mean, you could improve the meaning and that sort of thing with study, but you'd get it right. If you weren't on the right side, they, it would just be words, words, words. No, no data. You'd just never get it. So they had, that was, that was the way they, the take they had on this. So what the situation becomes is that the church thought that the Wycliffeites were throwing the pearl of the gospel before the biblical swine. And this is an Augustinian canon, Henry Knighton. He wrote this piece um, before 1397. He places it under 1382. I can't date it better than that. But this is what he had to say about this. Christ gave the gospel to the clergy that they might administer it to the laity and to weaker brethren according to the demands of the time and the needs of the individual as a sweet food for the mind. But Master John Wycliffe translated it from Latin into the language not of angels but of Englishmen, thus opening what used to be for literate and intelligent clerks to the laity and to women able to read, and spreading the evangelist's pearl to be trampled by swine. Now can it be by coincidence that the miller had bristles like those on a sow's ear or that on the continent, millers were thought to use their stolen grain to feed hogs. Well, while Chaucer was working on the Canterbury Tales, it was still possible for the learned to debate the pros and cons of translating the Bible into English. But already in 1384, Wycliffe refers to how such translation was considered shocking. And from the later 1380s, measures were increasingly taken to prevent the lower laity from appropriating certain kinds of religious knowledge. 
In 1388, commissions were set up to suppress Wycliffe's writings as well as those of several of his early followers. In 1389, the imprisoned author of a clearly Wycliffeite apocalypse commentary refers to the extirpation of material in the vernacular, the burning of the vernacular books. Also in 1389, a self-educated parchment maker by the name of William Smith, according to Knighton, he had helped set up an academy of evil beliefs and opinions, the Gymnasium Malignorum Dogmatum et Opinionum. He'd set this up in Leicester, and he had to do public penance, which was no fun, and hand over, and I quote, the books of the Gospels and Epistles and other epistles and doctors in the mother tongue that he'd long been laboring on. He'd been laboring over them for eight years. In 1397, just a bit after the Miller's Tale, we have all the discursive bits coming together. A Herefordshire squire, John Croft, had to swear not to read or own English books that had evilly been taken from the naked text, the nudum textum of the Bible, by certain persons commonly called Lola. Well, we don't know what Chaucer the poet thought about making the naked text of the Bible available to the likes of the miller. But Pilgrim Chaucer would surely have agreed it was casting pearls before swine. However, Chaucer the poet, he was a layman. He was busy making religious works available in English, um, I'm thinking, say, of his Parsons' tale, which provides an English version of a penitential manual. He has a lot of biblical translation in his works when you start putting it together. He would surely have been very interested in what was involved in translating the Bible into English. And he also knew some of the people involved. He'd very probably encountered Wycliffe, either in Oxford or in London. In London, Wycliffe, we know Wycliffe was running around in London in 1376. From church to church, he was running, advocating the disendowment of the clergy. Chaucer certainly knew Wycliffe's protector, who was John of Gaunt, who was almost certainly one of Chaucer's early patrons. John of Gaunt's long-term mistress, who finally became his wife, was Chaucer's wife's sister. And Chaucer was very close friends with members of a group of court-related knights who protected various Wycliffeite preachers, and it does seem that they provided the money and place for these for their translators to produce the translation and for the scribes to copy what was a very large number of manuscripts. So it's very hard to believe that Chaucer didn't discuss the biblical translation with such people. So with all this controversy in mind, let's take another look at the Miller's prologue. Now the first thing Pilgrim Chaucer tells us when the Miller opens his mouth, we now note with interest, is that he speaks in Pilate's voice. But in a voice like Pilate, he began to huff and swear. Well, here, we certainly have an upfront allusion to the biblical plays. That is, the plays that provided the people with a knowledge of the Bible in what the clergy considered an acceptably pre-digested form. Now, here I want to note that in 1390 and 91, so just when things are hotting up over the Bible translation, just when Chaucer's working on the Miller's Tale, I'm pretty convinced of this, London's parish and other clerks presented a three to five day play of the passion of our Lord and creation of the world with Richard II and his queen attending. 
as Chaucer surely would have been in the audience then, but like, we can tie him in a bit more closely because in 1390, he was clerk of the king's works and he was in charge of erecting scaffolds at Smithfield right nearby at just the same time as everything was being put together for the play. So he was almost certainly using the same, um, the same workmen. This was the judge that they were going to have. Um, so um, we've got all these connections. Well, anyway, getting back to the um, Miller and Pilot, in the plays, characters like Pilot regularly silence the crowd before a play begins, the one in which Pilot is. Um, so the opening lines of the townly scourging of Christ, Peace at my bidding, be tame as you're told. Look, none be so hardy to speak word but I. Say, know ye not I am Pilot, peerless to behold? So we've got the upfront allusion to the play. We then learn from the miller that his tale will be about a carpenter and his wife. That sounds pretty biblical. But then, in the middle of the, in the same sentence, class issues intervene. We learn how it's going to be how a clerk got the better of the worker. I will relate a legend and a life of an old carpenter and of his wife, and how a clerk set the worker's cap. So now we're beginning to expect something far removed from anything in the Bible. And then the Reeve jumps in, that nasty character, and he <laughs> he reinforces that the the idea that the tale's going to be no more than harlotry. Since I clap, let be thy lewd, drunken harlotry. And at this point, the miller, in a tone dripping with irony, persists with his hint that his tale will have religious as well as secular import. One shouldn't be too inquisitive in life, either about God's secrets or one's wife. You'll find God's plenty, all you could desire, of the remainder, better not inquire. We'll remember his words. I turn to the tale. Now, I've been teaching this tale for many years. And to begin with, I never knew really what to do with it because it seemed perfect. There seemed no way that I could get any purchase on it for discussion. But now I'm reading it through different eyes and I see it's filled with extremely obtrusive oddities, ones that we're surely meant to notice. There are lots of them. But take, for example, John the Carpenter. He's a fundamentally good-natured character, and yet he comes off worse in the end. He's rich. That's the first thing we learn about him. Then we learn all about his sweet-smelling lodger, Nicholas. Then we get told that the carpenter is a newlywed. And then we get what we have to assume will be his main distinguishing feature, his jealousy over his wife. Jealousy was and kept her in a cage, for she was wild and young, and he was old. So everything's exactly what we might expect in a tale involving an old husband, a gorgeous young wife, and a sexy young lodger. Is it? As we listen further, we discover that one thing John absolutely is not is jealous. Far from keeping Alison in any cage, he regularly leaves her free to rage and play with Nicholas, while well, he goes on overnight business trips to Osney and even, apparently, London. And when Alison's other aspiring lover, Absalom, serenades her the when she's in the bedroom with her husband at this point, he serenades her at the bedroom window, 
unambiguous loving. Now, dearest lady, if thy pleasure be in thoughts of love, think tenderly of me. When Absalom does this, John's main concern is that she might not be able to hear him. Alison, don't you hear Absalom who sings thus under our bedroom's wall? Yes, John, God knows I hear it all. <laughs> She's a woman of few words. So what does the miller make of John if he doesn't make him jealous? The answer's obvious. He makes him really, really stupid. <laughs> now, John couldn't have been very bright in any version of the tale that was circulating, but here he's even more stupid. He's more stupid than the tale needs. We're meant to notice this. Okay, so now let's think about how John gets cute. Now, Nicholas wants to trick John ostensibly so he can go to bed with Alison, with whom he could hop into bed almost any time. Now, what Nicholas really wants is to show the superiority of a clerk, that is, someone with an education, over a carpenter. A clerk would have poorly used his time if he couldn't trick a carpenter. So he devises his plan, one of truly Byzantine elaboration. First tells John that on Monday next there's going to be a flood twice as bad as Noah's. John is deeply distressed. Alas, me weep, and shall she drench? Alas, me alison. But Nicholas reassures him. Haven't you heard how Noah was saved? Yes, says the carpenter, a long time ago. And haven't you heard of the trouble Noah and his companions had in getting his wife into the ark? Oh, yes, John has apparently heard that too. So it only remains now for Nicholas to ensure that this time round there will be one mini-arc per person and to elaborate with all the social niceties on how they'll proceed once the flood is underway. Now, John must stow food in the three mini-arcs and he must have an axe with him so that when the water rises he can chop through the gable. And then, Nicholas assures him, You'll float as merrily, I undertake, as any lily-white duck beside her drake. And I'll call out, hey, Alison, hey, John, cheer yourselves up. The flood will soon be gone. And you'll shout back, hail, Master Nicolay. <laughs> so where did John get this implausibly obstinate Mrs. Noah from? Not the Bible, that's for sure. When, when Noah's wife simply enters the ark with her husband. He also didn't get it out of his own head. He got it from the plague, in many of which Noah's wife refuses to get on board even after the rain is pouring around her. I quote from the Chester place, Noah's wife, I will not come therein today. Noah, come in wife in twenty devils way or stay out. Um, Cam, his son, shall we all fetch her in? Noah, yea, son, in Christ blessing and mine and they haul her in and in most treatments she's then absolutely good so the miller shows john being duped by an oxford scholar that's someone who very probably intends to make his career in the church using the approved biblical relate biblically related narrative for his own nefarious class related purposes how on earth could a narrative involving a shrewish mrs noah be approved we might well ask because it's based on a standard allegory showing how the Old Testament foreshadows the New. So according to this allegory, the ark is the church. Outside the church, there's no salvation. Noah is Christ, 
who makes possible salvation. Noe significat Christum Arca Ecclesiam, said Augustine. Then the dramatists have this, and by a brilliant move, they achieve this memorable comedy by allegorizing Mrs. Noah at first as a disobedient sinner who refuses to repent and enter the church, but who finally achieves salvation thanks to Christ. So she achieves it, she stops being, being shrewish as soon as she's inside the ark. That's a nice allegory. But had John been more conversant with the Bible's naked text, he would have been spared a broken arm, being cuckolded on this occasion at least, and he would have spared being finally declared mad, both by Nicholas and Allison, and more ominously by the clerics in general. So every clerk immediately ganged up with the others, they said, the man is mad, my dear brother. Nicholas's use of this standard allegory for his own purposes illustrates what for the Wycliffeites would have been a worst-case scenario about how the church was deliberately misrepresenting the word of God to the people. It's John's fault that he doesn't know enough to see through Nicholas. The Wycliffeites would probably say, no, it wasn't his fault. It was the fault of the church. He hadn't told him right. But the miller thinks it is his fault. His fault because he's stupid. For not only is he generally stupid, and I mean stupid, but he's stupidly anti-intellectual. When he sees Nicholas gawping up at the moon in his room, he starts talking and says, Nicholas, you're like the astronomer who was so intent on staring at the stars that he fell into a pit of shit. And worse, he ascribes, this is John, ascribes to a deliberately anti-intellectual piety that in fact the church was increasingly endorsing in its attempt to counter Wycliffe's intellectualism. So John says to Nicholas, God has some secrets that we shouldn't know. How blessed are the simple I indeed that only know enough to say their creed. It's the stupidity of a kind the miller finds unforgivable. That's why he finds no sympathy for John at the end. In showing John duped over the biblical text in this way, the miller is exploring dangerous territory. Just how dangerous is indicated by what came next. So I referred to John Cross in 1397, who had to swear not to read or own English books taken from the Bible. Um, in 1401, the year after Chaucer's death, probably, um, legislation was passed whereby relapsed or obdurate heretics might be burnt. And in that year, the first burning took place, in fact, just before the legislation was passed. In 1407, the Archbishop of Canterbury legislated against the further translation of any biblical text, as well as against the reading of any such text made in or about the time or after the time of Wycliffe. Um, I won't, I've got a litany of cases here, which I won't go into because of time. But if any of you study the 15th century, the, the kind of censorship that was brought in by this legislation I've just referred caused all the wonderful ex experimentation that had been going on in the late 14th century and works like Chaucer's just, it just put a wet blanket, cut plunk over it. Things didn't really recover for a century. Um, more, um, more relevant really to my, so my story is that the burning continued right up to the um, to England's break with Rome in 1534. Um, possession of a Bible was 
definitely a sign, especially if this was by lower class people. Upper class people could have it, but lower class people, it was a sign of probable heresy. So you followed up after that. But you get to a stage when people could would be brought in as heretics even for teaching their children the Ave Maria, um, the Paternoster, and the Creed in English. So what was permissible for John, the Creed, which presumably he knew in English, um, became out of bounds. Well, the miller tells his tale before the battle lines have been fully drawn. But as a churl, critical of how the established church was representing scripture, he would have had good reason to want to cover his trucks tracks from the early 1380s on. How better to do this than to hide behind his own drunken stereotypes? And how better to, pro to protect his controversial thinking from those who might disapprove than behind a tale of harlotry? A tale whose only overt knowledge of the biblical story comes from ecclesiastically reproved works like the play. A tale which apparently upholds the status quo by having the clerk get the better of the churl. A tale in which, and this is my final point, even doors get treated or half-treated as they should in a stereotypical Miller's world. We're back to Nicholas's door. If you'll remember, when preparing for his trick, Nicholas locks himself in his room for a couple of days. John becomes worried until finally he sends his knave, another Robin, to see what's going on. Robin peeks through the cat hole, sees Nicholas gawping, sit at the new moon, tells John, so naturally, John wants to break the door down. Get me a staff that I may underscore while that thou, Robin, heavest up the door. Dave obliges, and, and him in Middle English, and be the hast he hath it up into the floor of the door of still alone. So far, this is just what should happen to a door in the miller's world. But it doesn't stay in its brave new millerly world. Instead, Nicholas simply closes it once again. Then he sends John downstairs to get them some ale. John comes up, and when and when that age of him had drunk his part, this Nicholas, his daughter, faster shet and soon the carpenter be him he said. When they each had a drink, Nicholas shut the door and had the carpenter sit down beside him. Well, perhaps the knave had already put the door back on its hinges before disappearing from the tale forever. But in this most meticulously plotted of tales, the miller's silence on the point cannot be by accident. Rather, his inconsistency alerts us to the self-conscious way in which he has been partly playing to his stereotypes. I wouldn't go so far as to claim that the Miller was a card-carrying Wickelfite or Lollard. For one thing, even if he is largely playing to his stereotypes, he's getting away with far too much that the Wickelfites would have abhorred. He's on a pilgrimage, and they were vehemently anti-pilgrimages. He's brought along his bagpipe, when one thing they really hated was bagpipe-playing pilgrims. He, he swears by arms and by blood and by bones, by God's soul, when the Wycliffeites didn't like swearing, and they especially didn't like the kind that tore Christ's body apart. And his tale hardly corresponds with any genre the Wycliffeites would approve of. 
Admittedly, the Wycliffeites sometimes hid their real selves behind Eucharistic and other practices they disapproved of, but to hide behind oaths, drink, I think he had some drink, music, and a highly earthbound literary form would seem suspiciously like having one's cake and eating it too. Yet some of the questions raised by the miller resemble questions raised by others among the Canterbury Tales, particularly the poor parson. On the one hand, the parson approximates closely with the Wycliffeite ideal, his moral rectitude, his aversion for swearing, his care for his flock. On the other, his tale is concerned with oral confession to a priest, which was something the Wycliffeites worried about, and like the miller, he's apparently on the wrong kind of pilgrimage. Doubtless, this kind of eclecticism, religious eclecticism, belongs with a time when many were calling for reform, but before persecution had caused ideas to become rigid. But as the Man of Law's epilogue, seemingly cancelled, maybe because it seemed dangerous as time went on, as this indicates, at some point, someone, Chaucer or a scribe, probably Chaucer, did want us to think of the parson in conjunction with the Lollard. For when, in this passage, the parson objects to the host swearing, by God's bones, the host immediately suspects the parson is a Lollard. Our host answered, O Jankin, bay ye there, he smell a loller in the wind, quod he. This loller hair will preach him us somewhat. And the shipman jumped in and said, No, he won't. I'll tell my tale instead. Well, as regards religion, the miller would seem, of course, a good deal more eclectic than the idealistic parson. And unlike the parson, he's finally a comic creation. Even I wouldn't deny this. This doesn't mean that he himself cannot be deadly serious about furthering the cause of lay intellectualism. It also does not mean that he cannot retell his essentially comic tale in terms of a potentially explosive message about a corrupt clergy and the desirability of consulting the naked text of the Bible for oneself. If, as seems likely, Chaucer the poet was working, he was still working at a time, when for well-placed persons like himself, the idea of a biblically learned miller remains still a deliciously humorous contradiction in terms. He was writing to people who would have understood the joke. I'm not saying it's not comic, but I'm saying for the miller it's not comic. Well, graduates of the University of Chicago or of St. John's College in Annapolis Tributor of literature for French women's lives, the miller may not have been. Erica Young was right about his activism. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.